Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Rising recession concerns, a budget move to the center, and the killing continues in Ukraine. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on what happens when you run the economy hot for the sake of employment. We do not do anybody a favor by overheating the economy, because when we overheat the economy, the chickens do come home to roost. And former IBM CEO Sam Palmisano on the opportunity for the United States to form a new coalition to compete with China in tech. I call it the Super Bowl of geopolitics. The U.S. needs to leverage the world. It was a week of anticipating what didn't happen, at least not yet, with encouraging reports on possible progress in talks between Ukraine and Russia giving way to skepticism and disappointment. We can say that the signals we hear from the talks are positive, but these signals can't silence the explosions of Russian shells. We'll see. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. The Kremlin very much downplaying now the outcome of peace talks in Istanbul. A spokesman for the Kremlin saying that there has been no breakthrough, even though Russia pledged to scale back some military operations in Ukraine. It was a week when the Biden administration gave us a proposed budget that anticipated reducing the deficit, but not the debt. It's a laundry list. It's what we believe in. It's almost a campaign speech, if you think of it that way, knowing the White House knows all too well that this will be uh, twisted into a lot of different uh, pretzel pieces before this ever becomes a law. This budget has a plan to borrow a $14.4 trillion in deficits over the budget window, which is 10 years. And it was a week when former New York Fed Chair Bill Dudley warned about the danger of a recession. 
Every time the unemployment rate goes up by more than a half a percentage point, the next stop is a full-blown recession. And pros like Mike Schumacher of Wells Fargo kept an eagle eye on a yield curve inversion. This times was inverted for a nanosecond or two yesterday, but we think the curve gets substantially inverted very quickly. And if you look at what the bond market is telling us in forwards, something like minus 30, minus 35 at the end of the year, those are staggering numbers. Mike Schumacher was talking about a nanosecond on Wednesday, but by Friday, we got that inversion as yields on two-year treasuries rose above that on tens after the 10-year sold off in response to the f jobs numbers coming out on Friday, which were pretty robust, numbers that took the unemployment rate down to 3.6%. And this came on the heels of a quarter that ended on Thursday with the biggest drop in treasury bonds in history. In the face of all this bond action, equities actually were relatively well-behaved, with the S&P 500 the Nasdaq up a bit and the Dow down a bit. And the price of oil, which has been driven by the war in Ukraine, fell the most in two years after President Biden announced he'd be releasing a million barrels a, a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. To help us make sense of all of this, welcome now Sarah Ketterer, CEO of Causeway Capital, and Lizanne Saunders, Charles Schwab, Chief Investment Strategist. Lizanne, let me start with you to make sense of all this. It was a tumultuous quarter and a pretty eventful week as well. What are we learning from all this? Well, clearly the, the inversion of the yield curve, which a couple of days ago, it happened briefly intraday and didn't close at that level, has, I think, garnered most of the attention, certainly a lot of the financial media attention and, and lots of confusion about what it actually says about the risk of recession. I, I think anytime you have an inversion, anytime you've got a Fed moving from extremely easy policy to tighter policy, you need to dust off the, the checklist for a recession. But to see the market... Uh, behave somewhat resiliency is actually not um, out of the ordinary. Uh, yield curve inversions have historically generally seen rising equity markets. It's really not until the point where recession seems like a higher likelihood you run into trouble. But I think we're in a relief rally relative to the correction that preceded it. I, I wouldn't bank on it uh, continuing uh, with without another uh, bit of a pullback. Sarah, do you believe the relief rally? Is it here to stay? It all depends, David, on what real interest rates do. So it's very important to note that as inflation is rising, we are seeing, and this is particularly acutely an issue in Europe and in the U.S., real interest rates are going more negative, and that creates more fuel for equity buying. So that's one of the reasons why we keep fully invested, because we want to make sure our clients get access to what the only place you can put money is in equity markets, in our view. And also note, I mean, there's plenty of bad news, but oil price shocks historically in the 70s, um, early 90s, in, uh, in 2000, they're not always followed by weak equity markets. Those two are not correlated. So there are reasons to be optimistic in what looks like a very dark environment. So Lizanne, I wonder in, in the face of these negative real rates that we just heard about from Sarah, as well as oil shocks at the moment, there's a lot of talk about the 70s where we had overstimulus and then on top of that, the oil shocks. It really does raise the question about the inflation. Negative real rates indicate we still have our foot on the accelerator and at the brake. How far do we have to go to slow down this economy to get inflation under control? 
Well, you know, even even Powell has said he's uh, willing to accept a recession as a uh, as the end game associated with finally bringing down this inflation problem. Uh, I don't think we're really looking at a 70s type of environment. I think there's more differences between today and the 1970s than there are similarities. Stagflation, I think, used with a lowercase s generically, maybe is appropriate given weaker growth and high inflation. But really what that represented in the 70s was a high and rising unemployment rate, which is clearly different than the current environment. Lizanne Saunders and Sarah Ketter will be staying with us as we come back and look around the corner to what's coming up, not just next week, next next quarter, but down the road. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. I think one of the nice things about this environment is that with all the carnage out there, with so many of the smaller companies and the less well-capitalized companies and the less well-managed companies are starting to really have difficulty, in some cases going out of business. And I think this environment is going to afford the bigger, well-managed companies the ability to pick up market share and in many cases maintain their dominance. Give us one favorite that you think still has a ways to go. I still like Microsoft, speaking of the behemoths Mm -hmm. and, and AOL, although I wouldn't necessarily consider that a technology company anymore. That was our very own Lizanne Saunders appearing on Wall Street Week with Louis Ruckheiser back in 2001 when AOL was still a behemoth, by the way. Lizanne has remained with us along with Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital. So we've had a conversation about what's happened this quarter, what's going to be coming up around the corner here. But let's look down the road. Sarah, let me start with you. Uh, where is there cause for hope? We've got a lot of concerns about inflation, about the tightening we're expecting in response to that. And by the way, we still have a war going on where people are dying every day over in Ukraine. But what are some of the possible upsides for investors down the road? Perhaps not too far down the road, and I hinted at that before the break, are the pandemic recovery stocks. They were certainly hit very hard in 2020 and had a a false dawn in early 2021, and then the Omicron variant uh, gripped them again and dragged them lower. They rallied a bit, and, and they were doing very well from January of this year until February 23rd, particularly the ones in Europe. And then we had this, as you noted, this horrendous invasion. So that uh, really hit these stocks hard. Some of the great airline companies, like one of the best discounters in the world, Ryanair, crushed. And these are opportunities for investors because we can't assume that invasions last forever and this pandemic is thankfully dissipating. So there are um, other ones in aerospace, travel and leisure. You can find airport companies, um, aircraft engine manufacturers have only one or two competitors. Like it's a, this is where active management gets very excited, as you can tell. There are pandemic recovery stocks out there. They're in food catering and retail. They they just need, they need the, uh, the mass to be off, the people be out again. And then, uh, and as we discussed before, not too great of an inflation headwind cutting into their discretionary spend. So, Lizanne, in addition to possibly the pandemic recovery, you may agree with exactly what we just heard from Sarah, but there's one other factor I, I wonder about, and that's fiscal stimulus. Right now, we have essentially a de-stimulus because we're coming off of so much fiscal stimulus in the United States. At the same time, that horrendous war in Ukraine that goodness knows we want to be over soon, at some point will be over, and there'll have to be the need to invest a fair amount. Could that be a potential fiscal stimulus, at least in Europe? 
Yeah, I, I think the the investment story longer term, not just driven by uh, the, the terrible tragedy going on in Europe right now, although that clearly will stimulate some investment, whether it's energy infrastructure, um, food infrastructure, not to mention the rebuilding of actual infrastructure in Ukraine. But even prior to that, I think what the, the pandemic brought about was the necessity of investments in certain areas. And there was so much low-hanging fruit of inefficiency in uh, quite a few segments of our economy, um, healthcare, education. And I think the necessity of sort of stepping up and becoming more efficient and investing in digital driven by the pandemic, I don't think kind of goes back under the rock. I, I think we have unleashed what is likely to be an era of, of stepped up investment and probably along with it, higher productivity. It doesn't prevent a possible recession in the near term, but that's where I think there is sort of a shining light when you think longer term about what may come out of the combination of both the pandemic and the war. It may even be medium term to the degree that uh, that digital spend is so necessary that it'll take precedent even when other, if there's some sort of curtailment of capital expenditures, companies have to make that transition and they need to do so globally. So we think of that as somewhat uh, non-cyclical part of the whole technology spend. Lizanne, I don't think I know many people who are rooting for a recession, although, as you suggest, a lot of people have to be prepared for the possibility of it. But is there a potential, if I can say that, upside potential to some creative destruction? I think that's what you were talking about. Whenever you have a lot of money sloshing around, some bad decisions are made. If you take some of that liquidity away, then actually people have to make some tough decisions and maybe you sort out maybe the, the sheep from the goats. Yeah, I, I think there have been some uh, maybe unintended consequences of this massive amount of liquidity, whether it's a mispricing in various markets and asset bubbles. So I think there's a benefit that will accrue there. And then as we already touched on, the unfortunate possible necessity of constraining aggregate demand in order to rein in the combination of the supply chain problems and and just the the feeder effect it's having on on pricing and inflation we may need a recession to calm all of those uh, forces and it may not have to be a particularly deep one but i do think what we're looking at is a more kind of normal cycle if we're heading into recession what it looks like the causes of it being tighter monetary policy that's sort of traditional the the last cycle the covid recession the aftermath of it um th there was no playbook for that that was incredibly unique i think this next cycle both into the next recession and coming out will be a little more, I don't want to say garden variety, but a little more in keeping with your typical recession recovery type cycle. So Sarah, give us just a little taste of your secret sauce here as an investor, as somebody who maintains a portfolio. As you take a look, you've talked about things like coming back from pandemic, that's sort of a structural thing across yep. the board. As you try to figure out which companies really are being run well and efficiently are making sensible decisions, what do you look at? And what are, the, what are those companies? Give me an example or two. Well, just to take up what Lizanne just mentioned, to the degree we've got, we're going to see a typical recovery or typical recession recovery, then let's find those stocks that tend to do well in that environment. So what doesn't do well initially as you head into the bottom of the economy, and I, I'm speaking really for everything ex-China, the rest of the world is largely on the same monetary policy cycle, meaning tightening other than China. And... Uh, 
banks, other financials, they tend to bottom somewhere as as we get into that significant amount of tightening and the recession takes hold. And then they rally very strongly. You may remember uh, the early part of 2009, unbelievable performance. So, so if, if history is going to repeat itself, if what Lizanne says is correct, which I agree with, this is a little more normal, a little more, then, then those would be good stocks to own. And the most bombed out ones are in the part of the world that's really been hit hard, which is Europe. So European financials, and you could also go with the energy transition. One of the silver linings of this horrendous uh, energy disruption is the greater need to accelerate than move to low and then zero carbon type uh, renewable energy. And some of the European utilities are expert at this and they're trading at four or 6% dividend yields. Thank you so much, Lizanne Saunders and Sarah Ketterer. Coming up, what does a post-sanctions world mean for tech competition between China and the United States? We find out from former IBM CEO, Sam Palmasano. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Hundreds of thousands of people were being cut off from help by Russian forces. The seeds in places like Maryland. Nick Wilden and Dylan. Not stopping. It's like something out of a science fiction movie. President Biden described the death and destruction we're seeing from Russia's military invasion of Ukraine during his recent trip to Europe. But this war goes beyond the military. It is being fought in the markets as well, with the U.S. and its allies imposing severe sanctions on the Russian economy, something Ukrainian President Zelensky says is the only thing likely to get through to Vladimir Putin. There's no other language than if I fish in sanctions that Russian leadership can understand. Their war machine has to be cut off from the means of existence. And when it comes to the economic battle, it's not just the United States versus Russia. China plays a crucial role. I made it clear to him that make sure he understood the consequences of him helping Russia. But I pointed out the number of American and foreign corporations that left Russia as a consequence of their barbaric behavior. Which poses a difficult question for President Xi, who has pledged to support Mr. Putin, but has to keep a careful eye on his country's role in the global economy, which Nobel laureate Michael Spence says he is surely doing. China understands something that um, President Putin doesn't seem to understand, and that is that any economy, even a big one, like China or even the United States, can't perform at anything like its full potential in isolation. And so I, I expect China to sort of move carefully and, and try to thread the needle, but to avoid uh, a scenario in which we start dividing the world up into blocks. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. 
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. When it comes to international economics, and particularly when it involves technology, we turn to our very special contributor. He is Sam Palmasano, former CEO of IBM. Thank you so much for being with us, Sam. So we're seeing a lot of changes in trade patterns, in economic dealings, in payment systems around the world because of the war in Ukraine. Talk to us about what specifically that may mean in the area of technology, whether it's Russia or China, depending on which way China comes down. Well, David, it's actually an excellent point. And I think that the the sad controversy of the Ukraine is just accelerating transition or changes that I believe will potentially occur. I mean, as you know, everybody's talking about Russia, but also the implications in the U.S.-China relationships. And there's no doubt about it. And there's a lot of speculation that China and the U.S. will separate economically. Uh, I really don't think that will occur. Um, the reason I say that is these economies are too large and too interconnected to the world. You mentioned payment systems, flow of capital, all those things these economies are dependent upon. So I don't think separation totally occurs. However, as I say that, I, there's no doubt, I believe, that when it comes to technology and future technologies, there's going to be competition between the two countries. And that's more so, I'll say, China, U.S. I mean, Russia really doesn't have the kinds of technologies that we're talking about. But if you think about things like semiconductors, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, computing, cyber computing, clearly there's going to be competition and therefore I think there'll be less collaboration between China and the United States. So if that happens, because it certainly looks right now like that's where it's heading, we're not heading to a one big globe where we're all the same and we all deal with each other, maybe more separation, particularly in areas like tech. If that happens, how are we, and for we, for the moment, I'll say the United States situated, because some people are concerned that China, for example, has really been investing a lot more in tech than we have been. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I think uh, last year alone it was 1.5 trillion. We're estimates in that range. So yes, China is out investing in the United States. They're not out investing the West. So I'll comment on that a little bit. But I mean, as you think of it, it's all this U.S.-China uh, focus. I mean, I call it the Super Bowl of geopolitics. You know, it's the Titans. Uh, if you look at it today, to use a sports analogy, the U.S. is about a three-point favorite in the game going into the game. However, China is spending a lot, and they're catching up. Can could have a heck of a fourth quarter. So my point being in that analogy, David, is the fact that the U.S. needs to leverage the world. If they could come together and optimize their focus, their investments, I think they clearly could continue to lead and out-compete China. 
So, Sam, I want to come back to if they can come together, because that could be a big if. But let's assume that could happen. Who's on our team, so to speak, to continue your Super Bowl analogy? Who are the major players in tech on our team? I think the major players, if you go through it, I mean, there's, if you look at the, take semiconductors as an example. Uh, I think it's a good example. Everybody's focused on manufacturing capacity called fabs. That's important because there's such a dependency on Taiwan and there's concerns and risk over China and the Taiwan, Taiwanese relationship. Having said all that, there's, there's different elements to the ecosystem in, in semiconductors. There's fabric, there's the tools to fabricate, there's the design tools, there's the materials, there's packaging, and there's great expertise, especially in Europe. Europe has great research and great expertise in many of these areas. South Korea and Japan has great expertise in the manufacturing tools and manufacturing side of the house. So my point being is that if you look at the capabilities, the U.S. certainly leads today in design and packaging, there's no doubt about it, and the research capability. But you combine these capabilities between Europe, mostly Germany, uh, Japan, uh, and I say really South Korea and Singapore, but you know those countries within those regions, you can see how this thing could align. Okay, Sam, thank you so very much. Really appreciate it. I'm delighted to say that Sam Palmasano is a contributor to Wall Street Week, and of course, he's the former CEO of IBM. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're joined again this week by our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, we got jobs numbers out at the end of the week on Friday. Strong job numbers once again. Also, by the way, I should say strong increases in wages. At the same time, that does raise the question whether this economy may be even more overheated than we thought. Look, I think the single most important statistic for judging overheating is the ratio of vacancies to unemployment. And with these jolts numbers and these unemployment numbers, that statistic is going to be plumbing new highs uh, in the, in, when it's next uh, calculated. And that suggests even more tightness in labor markets. And I think that points towards uh, even more inflation. So I think near term, we've got, a, if anything, a bit greater inflation concern uh, than we had before we saw uh, these numbers. Of course, it's good that the economy is looking relatively strong. I think if you were in doubt as to whether the previous weakness was fundamental or was caused by Omicron, this would tend to tilt you towards thinking that it was caused uh, by Omicron. But look, uh, labor market indicators are always contemporaneous or lagging, so we don't know what the future holds, and certainly there are worrisome signs in terms of what's happening with consumer sentiment. But for now, I would say these are uh, relatively inflationary numbers, and that's how markets look to be reading them with significant movements towards yield curve inversion. Larry, at the same time, you'd be the first to say these jobs numbers are good for the people who are getting jobs, and particularly some of the people at the lower end of the spectrum, which is something we should be concerned about. Is there no way that we can both take care of those people, make sure they're employed, that they are getting paid fairly, and not overheat the economy. David, look, this is why uh, the earned income tax credit is such a good idea. This is why I've supported increases in uh, minimum wages. This is why we need stronger programs for people who don't go to college of uh, many kinds. 
but we do not do anybody a favor by overheating the economy. Because when we overheat the economy, the chickens do come home to roost at some point as the inflation has to leave uh, the system. And so I think that this idea that we simply cheer on more and more employment without thinking about the inflationary consequences is like a doctor who celebrates the results of the prescription of their painkiller without thinking about what's going to come uh, down uh, the road. I think the Fed, too late, has awakened to that and is moving towards a strategy that is much more oriented uh, towards uh, tightening. Larry, let's talk about those chickens maybe coming home to roost. There is talk about a possible recession here. You and I have talked about that this at various times. I know you focused on historically one of the issues about the 4% number, under 4% unemployment at the same time you have over 4% inflation. We also had the yield curve, the twos, tens yield curve invert a couple of times this week, including after the jobs numbers came out. Uh, do you pay much attention to the yield curve at this point as a predictor of recession? I pay a little less attention to it than people in the markets uh, do. And I think it's important to understand that it's not a causal relationship. If it exists, it's a canary in the coal mine kind of relationship. So it's not that changing the 10-year changing the interest rate, if you could do it in some way, will change the prospect of recession. Rather, it's that when people are forecasting that the Fed is going to be cutting rates, they're also forecasting that that's going to happen because there's a recession. So it's a correlation thing, not a causation thing. I think that what's happening with the yield curve adds to a sense of economic anxiety that in situations like this, historically, we have not achieved soft landings and we have seen uh, recessions. Is it a certainty that we'll see a recession in the next two to three years? No. Is it more likely than not that we will see a recession in the next two years? I don't see how anybody can look at either the historical experience or what markets are predicting and not think that it's 50-50 better than 50-50 that a recession will start sometime within the next two years. Uh, Larry, we also got the, the budget from the White House at the beginning of the week this week, and everybody agrees it's aspirational. What is sent out as the budget from the White House does not actually become law, but it does reflect values, as person after person from the White House reminds us. What are the values that you saw in President Biden's budget? So I was glad to see increases in the defense budget. I was glad to see a substantial indicative commitment towards doing something about COVID. I was glad to see uh, an emphasis on mental health as a theme in the budget. I was glad to see open-mindedness and open to complete negotiation on the remnants of Build Back Better rather than re-prescribing all of uh, that expenditure. Those were all, I thought, positive uh, steps. I would have liked to see more realism on the tax side. I think the billionaire's uh, tax is a bad idea whose time will never come. I think it's mislabeled 
to give it a kind of populist uh, appeal relative to what's being proposed. I think the general idea of taxing capital gains when people don't have those capital gains and haven't sold uh, the assets is not a realistic one. I think a much better strategy would have been to concentrate on a variety of loophole issues, capital gains at death, carried interest, which the administration has still not gotten uh, done, changing like-kind exchanges uh, for uh, real estate. But the single most important thing, even if nothing else happens, is that the historic bit of economic diplomacy that Janet Yellen concluded on uh, corporate tax with other countries is enabled by the necessary U.S. legislative uh, action. Uh, Larry, if you read the fact sheet put up by the White House earlier this week, they led with fiscal responsibility, the fact that they would be reducing the deficit. At the same time, if you look at the projection over the 10 years that they do for budgets, actually as a percentage of GDP, the debt grows from something over 102% to something over 106%. Is that sustainable for the United States? It's worse than that, uh, David, because the interest rate forecasts in the president's budget look comical today in light of what's happened uh, to interest rates. That's fair enough. They lock in those budget forecasts months in advance. But my guess is that if you used realistic forecasts, you'd add another 5% uh, to the debt-to-GDP ratio. I suspect, given what's happening to interest rates, that there's going to be a need for more fiscal adjustment than uh, the administration imagines. I suspect the administration has underestimated the national security expenditures that will be necessary going forward. And I think we're moving towards a moment when we're going to have to start thinking about fiscal policy as well as monetary policy as an anti-inflationary uh, tool. Thank you so much to our very special contributor to Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Learning from our mistakes, or not, all of us can make mistakes, and sometimes when we go back over them, we cannot believe what we were thinking, or maybe what we were not thinking. And the big banks certainly are no exception to this rule. There's the London big whale fiasco at J.P. Morgan that led to the end of senior executive Ina Drew's 30-year career. I accepted responsibility for the events that happened on my watch in one of the portfolios in my division. And there's Deutsche Bank in 2018 mistakenly transferring $35 billion to Eurex Clearing, which was more than the total net worth of the bank at the time. Germany's biggest lender has sent about $35 billion to an exchange as part of its dealings. They already have problems with risk management. This is not a headline. A flub. A flub is a polite way of putting it. Yeah, $35 billion just sort of walked out the door. To Citi, in the height of the pandemic, paying over $500 million to Revlon creditors despite a fight over the funds, money that it could not get back. Citigroup, it unexpectedly lost its legal battle to recover half a billion dollars it mistakenly sent to Revlon lenders. It's the latest blow to the bank that's been forced to answer to regulators and tighten its internal controls. Mind you, this all comes after Congress decided to make sure those banks were paying attention, giving us all the protections of a law called Dodd-Frank. Because of this law, the American people will never again be asked to foot the bill for Wall Street's mistakes. 
So it must have been particularly painful to Barclays this week when it found out that it had a teensy-weensy clerical error in selling more in structured notes than the SEC had given it permission to sell. You see, it had asked for and received the okay to sell $20.8 billion worth of these securities. But apparently someone wasn't paying attention and kept selling them way past the point they were supposed to stop, like to the tune of $36 billion, leaving Barclays with an estimated loss of $591 million. I just think it's just a simple filing error. They, they forgot to add an extension to the shelf, or, <coughs> and that's very embarrassing, um, you know, logistical error. The financial hit is bad, but you know, fairly manageable. Uh, it's more the reputational hit. It may be April Fool's, but this one is no joke. Certainly not for Barclays management. Let's see what we can learn from this one. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.